You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. And so we're trying something new uh, today. We're going to do a Thich Nhat Hanh kind of uh, practice where they hit the, uh, the Incan bell, or the bell, a bell, the Incan would be good, every 10 minutes to kind of help us slow down, help us pause, breathe, and then start again. So that's the whole purpose of our session is doing just that. So this is perfect. Can you turn that uh, clock so I can see it over here, Jigen? Oh, thank you very much. So here we are. What is this? The second day of session, second full day of session. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I love Sushin so much. It really helps me in many, many ways. So um, I'm also waiting for my cup of tea that, that uh, uh, Kaido is getting for me. My throat is a little dry. <laughs> so. I'm speaking today about grief. And I've been looking deeply into the nature of grief, my grief, uh, especially in the last 10 days, 10 weeks. Looks like a package has been delivered. <laughs> uh, so it was, I think, this past summer that uh, Roshi was, it was a big uh, garden volunteer day, cleaning up the garden. And uh, Jack, Dr. Jack Miller walked in. Uh, he had, there was no appointment. And he and Roshi started talking and hit it off. And uh, Jack told Roshi about this project that he was involved in called the Phoenix Project. And what it is, it's um, a process he's developed over the years uh, to work with grief and with repressed memories. He's a psychologist and a former Buddhist, uh, former Catholic priest. Uh, so Roshi said, oh, sure, absolutely, you can use our place. <laughs> so for the past 10 weeks, we've been meeting here on Sunday afternoons, a small group of us, five of us, six including me, no, six including me and then seven with Jack. And um, we've, been, we've been getting in touch with our grief. And the reason I wanted to um, go to it was because I felt that I hadn't really touched into my grief. 
and in particular, I think it first happened with the death of my father. And this was in 2008. And we were living in the house on Humphrey Street. And all I know is that it kind of hit me. Uh, I, I knew, you know, the last six months uh, he was in hospice. I knew that he was physically dying. Uh, and, but still, when I got the call from my brother that he had passed, I felt like, um, I felt totally disoriented because I was very close to my father. I was the firstborn, right, girl, so definitely daddy's girl, right? <laughs> well, anyway, in my family as well, uh, in, uh, in particular. So um, I didn't cry, though, which um, was kind of surprising to me. But, but in this process, I've been just kind of remembering <clears throat> the times that I spontaneously cried because I was very sad. And I think the last time was when I was age 25, and I was leaving Hawaii, Honolulu, um, to come up to the mainland uh, with the man I was living with. He had gotten a residency in Seattle, so we were coming up here for his uh, medical residency. And I, that was the last time I cried that I was so sad to be leaving Hawaii and friends, but mostly Hawaii, the place because it's a beautiful place. And if you've been there, you know what I mean about being in a place that is totally gorgeous and you feel totally nourished by. So I thought it was rather curious because I just, I, and up until 20, age 25 at various points, I was remembering times where I spontaneously just burst out into tears because I was sad. And why, after age 25, had I stopped? I did not really know. So I, and this thing with my father, you know, him dying, and I was surprised at my reaction first uh, just feeling just really disoriented and not kind of numb, not being really able to feel very much. So since then, I've, um, I've just actually, last night, I was like, what am I going to talk about today? <laughs> I thought, oh, well, I guess I better talk about grief. It's up for me. Let's talk about grief. Uh, so I've been reading on the internet. There's some wonderful articles on the internet about Buddhism and grief. Um, so Joan Halifax has a great article because she's worked a lot with death and dying, 
that's her practice. Um, so she says, um, to deny grief is to rob ourselves of the heavy stones that will eventually be the ballast for the two great accumulations of wisdom and compassion. Grief is often not addressed in contemporary Buddhism. Perhaps uh, because it's looked upon as a weakness of character or as a failure of practice. But from Joan's point of view, Roshi Joan's point of view, she says it is a vital part of our very human life, an experience that can open compassion and an important part or phase of maturation, giving our lives and practice depth and humility. Now, let me repeat that. Joan feels that uh, grief is an important phase of maturation, giving our lives and practice depth and humility. So I looked up the dictionary definition of grief, and it says, deep sorrow, especially that caused by someone's death. But it could be other things as well. It could be the loss of anything, position, a pet. And then I found uh, the writings of Domio Burke from Brightway Zen in Beaverton, Oregon. And she is a student of uh, Kyogen Carlson from Dharma Rain Zen Center in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I believe they are, I'm not sure if they are in the line of uh, G.U. Kennett Roshi uh, or um, the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. I'm not sure, but they are, are strong practitioners there at Dharma Rain Zen Center. So Domio, who is also a wildlife biologist, as well as a Dharma teacher, she says, grief is love in the face of loss. Grief is love in the face of loss. And that made a lot of sense to me. So similar to the phases of dying, grief can be characterized by numbness and denial, anger, great sorrow, depression, despair, and confusion. And finally, there can be acceptance and even transcendence as sorrow has opened 
the door of appreciation and compassion. So uh, Joan also said, these phases are similar to those experienced in a rite of passage, separation, transition, return. So this acknowledging and experiencing our grief is very important. Something I kind of missed because I really didn't know anything about grief and I had an idea, you know, I was starting to practice Zen and uh, maybe, you know, I should be somehow in control and in control of my emotions, <laughs> all misconceptions <laughs> about Zen. I was young then. What was this? This was in 2009 when my father died, 2008 when he died. So Domio says, um, acknowledging and experiencing our grief is very important, but there are many reasons we try to avoid facing it. Grief hurts. Grief can feel overwhelming, as if we're dipping our toe into an ocean of pain. And if we lean in too far, we may fall in and drown. If we do let ourselves experience grief, we usually do so only briefly, in a restrained and cautious way, and then try to get over it as quickly as possible. Right, does that ring a bell with anybody? <laughs> yeah, right, me too, me too. So um, the thing is, if we try to control our grief by ignoring, denying, suppressing, restraining, or holding on to it, we get emotionally stuck. Oh. Emotionally stuck, that rings a bell too. To some extent, we're refusing to face reality because grief is a part of our reality. And refusing to face reality is pretty much counter to Buddhist practice. Oh no, <laughs> it's like the opposite of what I was thinking here, right? So our practice is to face reality, to see reality as it is. That's what we call waking up. And yet, for some reason, we're afraid of this pain. It's like too hard. We just can't bear it, and so we repress it, or we distract ourselves from it. And psychology, right, has, uh, has informed and improved Buddhist practice by pointing out how easy and common it is for us to suppress our emotions in unhelpful and even damaging ways. Okay, so that's interesting. So we don't suppress or repress our emotions. Does that mean we feel and express them? 
So, um, in other words, just because you don't feel grief after a loss doesn't mean you've transcended or integrated the emotion. It might just mean that you haven't faced it or you've shut down that part of you that cares. Um, Domio is doing it's just a really great thinking on grief. I'm just I'm, I'm sharing with you her writing here. So she says the results of an inability or unwillingness to face our grief can be quite damaging to ourselves, our loved ones, our communities, and our planet. She's a climate activist as well, and she says, for example, it's becoming obvious to climate activists that we need to encourage and help people face their grief about the state of our natural world and the impact that climate and ecological breakdown is having on their lives, on our lives, right? The UN has just come out to say, Climate change is now irreversible, folks. So what are we going to do? Deny that it's happening? Well, that's the first stage of grief. Angry about it? That's another stage of grief. So she says it's kind of surprising to find yourself trying to get people to, you know, accept that this is what's happening to our planet when you're trying to get people to take action at the same time. That seems interesting. And there's a term for this solastate, which is called solastalgia. Solastalgia is the term. And it means the emotional and existential distress caused by climate and ecological change. I have solastalgia. So, as she said, you know, unfortunately, it is not at all uncommon for people on the front lines to, to um, be in denial about the changes in our environment. I mean, I even don't even want to think about it. Is that denial? That's avoidance. <laughs> Right, and then anger at the people who are to blame, perhaps including ourselves, bargaining. Maybe if we recycle and conserve electricity, the problem will go away. The situation is so bleak and hopeless, we just lose all motivation. So she, so Domio is saying, if we don't help people face their feelings, they may never get to the final stage of grief, which is acceptance, where there they will be, where you'll be better able to respond at that point when you have accepted the state of emergency for our planet. Maybe then you'll be really able to do something. So this acceptance is really important of how things are. So there are teachings on grief in early Buddhism, which may have also 
led us to some of our thoughts about how we respond to grief. So the classic Buddhist story about grief is about Kisa Gotami and the mustard seed, right? Kisa Gotami was a young woman who was evidently not very attractive. And in fact, Kisa means haggard. So it's like haggard Gotami, right? But in, you know, she was despairing that she would ever find a husband. And then she meets somebody, she does meet somebody, and she has a child. And so in India at that time, you know, she was also from a poor family, as well as not being so beautiful outwardly, but her husband found inner beauty in her. She gave birth to a son, and so that also builds status to have a child. Yeah, well, the son dies as a toddler, and she is distraught distraught. She cannot believe it, Utter, utterly devastated and driven mad by this. And she is, you know, carrying his body around, knocking on doors, begging them for medicine to save him, but he has already died. Finally, somebody tells her, go see the Buddha. He's supposed to be a great healer. So she goes to see the Buddha. And the Buddha says, yes, yes, I can help you. You just have to bring me some mustard seeds. Oh, I can get that. But from a family who has never experienced death. So she, full of hope, is going door to door. Do you have mustard seeds? Oh, yes, we have mustard seeds. But have you never experienced death? I'm sorry, I cannot. So she goes door to door to door. And then she gradually comes to her senses and buries her son, goes to the Buddha, and becomes a nun. And She attains our hotship and or complete liberation and addresses these verses to Mara, the tempter. Past is the time of my child's death, and I have fully done with men. I do not grieve, nor do I weep, and I'm not afraid of you, friend. Sensual delight in every way is dead. Sorry, it continues. Sensual delight in every way is dead, for the mass of darkness is destroyed. Defeating the soldiery of death, I live free from every taint. So the message from her story is pretty clear. You know, um, 
we grieve because of our desires and delusions. And once we're enlightened, we don't grieve. Here's another story. Ubiri, one of the first women Buddhists, was drowning in grief as a result of the death of her daughter. Through the help of the Buddha, she discovered truth from within the experience of her own suffering. So let me tell you the story of Ubiri. Ubiri came from a high family in Savati. She was beautiful as a child and when she grew up, was given to the court of King Pasenadi of Kosala. One day she became pregnant by the king and gave birth to a daughter whom she named Jiva, which means alive. Shortly after being born, her daughter Jiva died. Ubiri, terribly wounded by grief, went every day to the cremation ground and mourned her daughter. One day when she arrived at the cremation ground, she discovered that a great crowd had gathered. The Buddha was traveling through the region and he had paused to give teachings to local people. Ubiri stopped for a little while to listen to the Buddha, but soon left to go to the riverside and weep with despair. The Buddha, hearing her pain-filled keening, sought her out and asked why she was weeping. In agony, she cried out that her daughter was dead. He then pointed to one place and another where the dead had been laid, and he said to her, Mother, you cry out, O Jiva, in the woods. Come to yourself, Ubiri. 84,000 daughters, all with the name Jiva, have burned in the funeral pyre, fire. For which one do you grieve? And here's a poem from the first free women, poems of the early Buddhist nuns. Ubiri, the earth. How many days and nights did I wander the woods calling your name? Jiva, my daughter, Jiva, my heart. Late one night, finally exhausted, I fell to the ground. Oh, my heart, I heard a voice say. 84,000 daughters, all named Jiva, have died and been buried here in this boundless cemetery you call a world. For which of these jivas are you mourning? Lying there on the ground, I shared my grief with those 84,000 mothers, and they shared their grief with me. Somehow, I found myself healed, not of grief, but of the immeasurable loneliness that attends grief. My sisters, those of you who have known the deepest loss, as you cry out in the wilderness, just make sure you stop every so often to listen for a voice calling back.
And so this, this message is also conveyed in uh, the Mahi Parinibbana Sutta, which describes the scene of the Buddha's death. In 483 BC, on the full moon night of Mag, January to February, the master lectured to the Sangha at the village, Beluva, near Vaishali, on the impermanence of all living things, and said that his own life on earth was soon to end. According to the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, from Vaishali, the Buddha visited a number of centers and villages such as Ambagama, Jambugama, and Boganagara, and then went on to Pava, where a humble metalsmith, Chunda, invited the Sangha for a meal. Having tasted the special dish of Sukara Mandava, I think that's a meat dish, the master immediately realized that there was something wrong with it and asked Chunda to bury the rest so that others would not be harmed by it. Chunda was overcome with grief and guilt when he realized that his offering was the cause of the master's fatal illness. The Buddha, knowing this, mentioned to Ananda, his attendant, to tell the metalsmith that the one who donates the Buddha's last meal acquires great merit equivalent to the one who offered him food before his nirvana. As the Buddha lay between uh, twin sal uh, trees near the banks of the Hirayavati River in Kushinagar, comfortable with his impending death, the master asked the Sangha whether anyone had any queries, and there was silence meaning his teachings were well understood. The Buddha then uttered his last words. All conditioned reality is of the nature to decay. Strive on diligently. Some of the monks present who were not without passion wept uplifting their arms as if their feet were cut out from under them. They fell down and rolled back and forth, crying. All too soon is the Blessed One totally unbound or passed permanently out of the world, having attained Nibbana. Then the Buddha's foremost disciple and Dharma heir, Mahakashyapa, address the monks. Enough, friends. Don't grieve. Don't lament. Hasn't the Blessed One already taught the state of growing indifferent with regard to all things dear and appealing, the state of becoming separate, the state of becoming otherwise? What else is there to expect? It's impossible that one could forbid anything born, existent, fabricated, and subject to disintegration from disintegrating.
So this early Buddhist teaching, right, is suggesting that the goal of our practice is a state where we wouldn't grieve if something like that were to happen, because we've completely accepted the impermanence of all things, and then we become indifferent to them. That's what I thought. That's what I was confused about in 2008 and up until recently. <laughs> At a certain level, of course, this goal is appealing. Surely it's, it's, um, it's better to feel equanimity than it is to be mad with grief like Kisa Gotami was after the death of her son, maybe. But grief is one of the most painful emotions, perhaps the most painful. So it's not surprising that some of us cherish the idea that the hope that spiritual development and insight might free us from feeling it. So there's this danger of spiritual bypassing. You know, if we don't take the Buddha's teachings with a grain of salt, you know, it can really twist us up inside. And, and how, um, Domio puts it, you know, or maybe instead of saying, take them with a grain of salt, as if they might be untrue or inaccurate, I should say it's good to remember that each Buddhist teaching has a context and a purpose. Sometimes it is appropriate to accept everything is impermanent, buck up and get on with things. After all, the admonitions in the Pali Canon about not grieving are being given to people who are carrying around dead bodies and rolling back and forth on the ground. The Canon doesn't include what the Buddha might have said to another student who was emotionally repressed. Uh, still, it's pretty fair to say that most of Buddhism, including Zen, can easily give you the impression that emotions are thought of as inherently delusional or invalid. There's more than a suggestion that if you're enlightened, if you've really woken up to reality and accepted impermanence, if you're spiritually advanced, you don't even experience grief. Right, that's, that's, I think that's maybe not said so much, but that's kind of a, an understanding that a lot of us have in Zen. 
And John Wellwood says, you know, looking at things in this way can invite spiritual bypassing, where we're not doing the work that we need to do on this feeling that is a very human feeling. So John Wellwood says, a common tendency among Western spiritual seekers to use spiritual ideas and practices to avoid dealing with their emotional unfinished business. So working with therapists is great. I highly encourage that. So she's saying, unless you have experienced a dramatic loss, you know, and happens to be someone who is willing and able to feel your grief intensely, it's usually pretty easy to bypass grief, even without using spiritual methods. But grief, as we say, you know, the body just holds on to it. Grief seems to linger below the surface of our everyday lives like a dark underground cistern. And most of the time we, we can ignore it completely in favor of spiritual work that's less daunting or addresses more obvious issues. We can dismiss suggestions that we ought to pay attention to our grief because that seems to entail dredging it up unnecessarily. And enlightened people don't feel it anyway. Aren't we at least slightly more enlightened when we're able to go about our lives with joy or equanimity, despite that fact that we could get all sad if we really tried? Yeah. And then there's the fact about mindfulness and meditation, <laughs> right? As being excellent tools for settling you down when you're all riled up. And yes, they are. Yes, they are. So if you were to suddenly feel grief, right? All you have to do, this is what we teach, is become aware of your body and what you're feeling in your body, which is not so easy to do. Follow your breath, and often the intensity of the emotion will subside. And in fact, if you're not feeding the emotion with a story, it will subside because emotions, feelings, they're transient, they're impermanent, they come and they go. How long they last depends on you. So with practice and mindfulness, we get to be adept at redirecting our minds which is a good thing uh, when we're redirecting our mind from dwelling on ill will or getting us ourselves unstuck from that endless loop of rumination. That's a good thing for redirecting our mind. But redirecting our mind from something like grief that is painful and that we may not know how to deal with 
That is spiritual bypassing. Our whole practice here is to be able to face what is uncomfortable. Our practice zazen on the cushions builds courage to be able to pause and see what is going on here with loving kindness, without any judgment about it. And we notice the judgment because our minds are so fast and we go, okay, I can let go of this judgment. I see what, you know, my mind has come up. Thank you, mind. And I don't need it right now, right? So when something painful, like in this, that's what I've been practicing. Um, it's not been easy to do this past 10 weeks, but uh, we have a wonderful container, this container of mindfulness, zazen, meditation, every day if you can, or as much as you can, is very, very helpful for the ability to be present to what's going on, on the spot, to be kind of precise. And exercise is good too. Regular exercise is good. I have been incorporating that. That's what I've been learning with my Phoenix project. Something that I was like, oh, you know, I do hula. I don't know if I have to get out there and, you know, do more. But I have been walking three times a week for half an hour. Still, I'm not still getting my heart rate up because it's not what I would call power walking, but I am walking and I'm feeling much better with that. And that's kind of building your container and ability to work with the feelings because there's an amount of stress that comes up with that too. So that helps. It's kind of the container for your psyche to work with these difficult things that come up. So, but Buddhism evolves, right? That's what's the beautiful thing about our, our, our Buddhism. It evolves with time. And so there has been evolution about the idea of grief and how to work with it. It's a living tradition. Buddhism is a living tradition. So there's this 18th century story, another story about Satsujo, a student of the famous Rinzai master, Hakuin, Satsujo, so woman. And it's from this beautiful uh, collection, The Hidden Lamp. When Satsujo, a great disciple of Hakuen, was old, 
she lost her granddaughter, which grieved her very much. An old man from the neighborhood came and admonished her, why are you wailing so much? If people hear this, they'll all say, the old lady once studied with Hakuin and was enlightened, so now why is she mourning her granddaughter so much? You ought to lighten up a bit. Sachijo glared at her neighbor and scolded him. You bald-headed fool, what do you know? My tears and weeping are better for my granddaughter than incense, flour, and lamps. The old man left without a word. So um, Domyo is saying, I'm picturing Sachijo weeping openly, throwing herself across her granddaughter's casket at the funeral. I'm picturing people coming to visit her, but she refuses their visit, saying she's still too sad to interact with people. I'm imagining Sachijo making daily trips to her granddaughter's grave, bringing flowers and lingering there, tears streaming down her face. So the question is, is there a difference between Satsujo's grief and the grief that troubles us so much? The grief that we want to deny or get over as soon as possible, the grief that tears and twists us up inside, Yes and no. No, there's no difference in the essence of the emotion or in the pain. And yet, in a subtle way, this is Domyo speaking, I think there is a difference between Satsujo's grief and what many of us struggle with. I think Satsujo understands herself and experiences her grief wholeheartedly. She's not worried about what it says about her spiritual practice or what other people think. I also think Satsujo has a larger sense of reality, the fruit of her practice, which gives her the courage and strength to face her grief without fear of drowning. Yeah, she's a mature practitioner student of Hakuen does not care what people think about her practice or her. And uh, there's this underful, uh, other beautiful thing that um, uh, Domio proposes uh, that this radical idea, she says, that grief could be considered a sublime social attitude or a Brahma Vihara, along with love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Those are the four Brahma Viharas that we practice with others, right? Compassion is how love manifests when we see the beings we love suffer. And sympathetic joy is how love manifests when we see the beings we love happy. 
Might grief be how love manifests when we lose the beings or things we love? And um, we are encouraged to cultivate these four Brahma Viharas, you know, as a firm basis of our relationship and our practice, not just because they feel good, but compassion, uh, for example, requires empathy, right? It means suffering with. So just because grief hurts doesn't mean it's not a Brahma Vihara. Maybe it's not uh, actually unreasonable, unreasonable to talk about cultivating grief. I really like that idea. Building uh, up our capacity for it. Cult these, all of these bearing witness retreats that we did with Bernie Glassman to Auschwitz, that was cultivating our capacity for grief. And this doesn't mean manufacturing grief, because we don't have to manufacture compassion, right? Suffering will always arouse compassion, and there will always be loss to arouse our grief. Our ability to feel grief is a measure of our open-heartedness and freedom from self-concern, just like feeling the other Brahma-viharas. I think that is so beautiful. Our ability to feel grief is a measure of our open-heartedness and freedom from self-concern, just like feeling the other Brahma-viharas. And that's love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. When the 18th century Japanese haiku master Isa lost his baby daughter, he wrote, The dewdrop world is the dewdrop world, and yet, and yet. And the Zen nun Rengetsu expresses the poignancy of loss and impermanence in this way. The impermanence of this floating world, I feel over and over. It is hardest to be the one left behind. And I want to end with this beautiful paragraph by Joan Roshi, Roshi Joan. An old woman once told me that wisdom and compassion are not given to us. 
they can only be discovered. The experience of discovery means letting go of what we know. When we move through the terrible transformation of the elements of loss and grief, we may discover the truth of the impermanence of everything in our life and, of course, of this very life itself. This is one of the most profound discoveries to be made as we engage in Buddhist practice. In this way, grief and sorrow may teach us gratitude for what we have been given, even the gift of suffering. From her, we learn to swim in the stream of universal sorrow. And in that stream, we may even find joy. For this Buddhist, this is the essence of a liberative practice. So we have some time for questions or comments or stories you'd like to share. And I think we might have, oh, she can. <laughs> That was such a beautiful talk, Sensei. Just beautiful, wonderful. Um, you know, I lost my mother when I was in my um, early 20s, and I lost my father, too, a few years before that. And at the time, I was living at the Zen Center, and I um, and I drove home to our home, which was in Fullerton. And my, my mother had an exchange student that was living with her in the home from Africa, Omatsundi, and my mother was killed by a drunk driver and she died instantly. And so um, I walked into our family home in Fullerton and the neighbors were there and some friends and uh, Omatsundi was in her bedroom wailing and falling on the ground. And, you know, we're white Protestants and... <laughs> It's like everyone was just freaked out that Oma Sunday was doing this. Was, she was the sanest person in the house. Everyone else was like, you know, held and kind of, we don't know what to do with grief. It's too, it's too much. We feel like if we open to it, it'll be like a bottomless well. Your talk this morning. This is just the most beautiful, enriching and nourishing talk. Thank you so much. Uh, so um on September 25th, you are all invited. It's our celebration of our 12-week journey in grief. Um, it's at the Unity uh, in Evanston at 6.30, if you're able to come on a Saturday, September 25th. 
uh, to join us in, uh, we'll be sharing some of our um, discoveries on this path. So I hope you can come. Some refreshments will be served as well. <laughs> so I'm sorry for those of you, Carlene, I wish you could be here, but <laughs> Carlene is in Ontario. <laughs> Well, if no one's going to speak up, I'll, you know, there is a sense in Zen tradition of, um, and I remember hearing a story many years ago about a monk who was in some kind of retreat practice and his mother or father died and he didn't go to the funeral because he was in a retreat. And that was told as a, and the point of the story was to the point of the story was that look how committed this monk was to his practice that he didn't even go to his parents funeral and that is a really strange strange teaching it is in zen it is there there's some sense that grief is weak or um you know that you should there is that 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 does come up in buddhism and it comes up in zen too often in a kind of patriarchal setting, I think, to a kind of, you know, you kind of just, uh, you should sit through it, you shouldn't give into it, and uh, that weak, uh, grief is a weakness. Really messed up teaching, though. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think I, is it on? Yes, I believe they it can is. Hear, okay. Um, I think I've been taught too that like grief is selfish. You know, the wallow in your own grief and you know, someone dies and they're in a better place. So you hallelujah and celebrating their life, but you have a big hole and your time right now is, 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 is sad and there's loss. So I, I that the sense of selfishness of of grief arose for me while we were listening, and also I kind of that white Protestant type of thing, and but it seems to be reinforced in Zen. But I've um, I've been working as a chaplain for uh, the last year, and I remember a time when it was in the in the emergency department and someone was dying and the daughter was there and um, the nurses called me back because they were terrified for the woman's health. She was just in extreme grief. She had collapsed on the floor. She was a Latina. She had collapsed on the floor. She was crying. I helped her stand up and she's kissing her dad's feet and his head and all over his body and just wailing. And of course, you need the peace and calm in, in the emergency department. You can't have somebody wailing. So I think it was also that, that kind of scary for some of us to just let those emotions out and just be in that moment of just, just pure, raw grief. And we're, we're not given that. We're not taught that. We're not given permission to do that. So. 
Thank you. Yeah, so I was re remembering because up until the age of 25, you know, if something is really sad, I just burst, I couldn't help myself. I just burst out crying, you know? And then after 25, I guess I grew up, <laughs> you know? So, um, but that kind of growing up, there's something really missing, you know? You're, you're suppressing, suppressing that part uh, that, part that makes you so beautiful, really, to be able to feel all the emotions you have, what you consider good and what you consider bad, right? Yeah. So anyway, I've been reflecting on that, reflecting on that. And um, this process has just made me a little bit more empathic with people who are grieving, definitely. Yeah, just a, a question for you, uh, Sensei. Just wondering, do you feel like you are consciously repressing? You know, could you feel yourself? Could you feel those things come up, but, and then were you kind of pushing them down, or would you say you just weren't even aware they were there all those years? Um, I was thinking about my father, right? And I have this picture up here on the altar. My parents. Uh, this is our wedding day <laughs> at the Zen Center of uh, Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, I felt blocked. I did feel blocked. It was such a strong emotion, you know, that I felt that um, I just felt blocked. And I had, then I didn't remember, but later I remembered, yeah, all those times, this was a huge grief for me, my father dying. All those other times when I left my family and Hawaii, I just burst out crying and what happened here? What's, you know, so that's why I wanted to be part of the Phoenix Project and really spend some time kind of unpacking, un uncovering what I feel I had somehow dampened down. This was before Buddhist practice, too, 25. I didn't start until, was it 40, maybe, with Roshi. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Oh, there's another. Uh, just, uh, thank you so much for that wonderful talk. And uh, I just wanted to express that over the new year, I uh, I was left by my girlfriend, and we were supposed to move to New Orleans. We were planning on it for like two and a half years, and we were very close, I feel. And uh, and then my grandma passed away, and I was. And she took care of me till I was about eight. And uh, I still have my mother here on the Northwest side. Uh, but that's, our relationship is much closer now, but it's also, yeah, we did grow a little closer last time we spent time together, but it does feel 
very strong and very tenuous uh, our, our connection uh, very and very intimate but all, 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 I think also precarious uh, and uh, yeah uh, thank you so much for the talk Well, I guess uh, that's it. Then thank you very much. And uh, I guess we'll have lunch. <laughs> thank you.